0: So good to be with you tonight. I am uh, excited to be able to uh, share with you as we continue our series the miracles and meaning uh, from the book of John as we focus on uh, the eight miracles of John's gospel. Tonight, I am going to, um, I'm probably over-prepared for tonight, okay, so I'm just going to ask you to stay with me because I'm probably going to blitz through a lot and uh, really make some, uh, some headway tonight, but we're going to be in John's Gospel, uh, Chapter 6, about halfway through there if you have your Bibles. Um, tonight, we are going to talk about the miracle of Christ as he walks on the water, um, Now, what we're going to do is I have decided to split this, and we're going to do a little bit of of teaching on Jesus walking on water, but then we're going to take the portion that I've been promising you for weeks where we talk about the cautions that we need to have when it comes to the supernatural. And so we're going to take like the last half of our time together tonight We're going to talk about uh, just being wise, being uh, not afraid, not fearful of of the miraculous, what the the Spirit of God wants to do, but to be wise uh, in dealing with those things. And so tonight, uh, very, very excited with you. What we've been learning about uh, Jesus and the miracles and the meanings behind the miracle um, is, in a nutshell, it's pretty much this, is that miracles, especially here in John's Gospel, Miracles are not only about what Jesus does, but ultimately it is about who Jesus is. You can take what Jesus does and throw it away, but it would never change who Jesus is but Jesus accomplishes these miracles so that we can understand who he is. This is what John calls the miracles. The the word that he uses in the Greek is really the word signs. And so what John is saying to us, he's saying when Jesus did these signs, they were signs that were pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that Israel has been waiting for, and not just Israel, but the entire world. And so uh, tonight we're going to jump in and we're going uh, to talk about Jesus uh, walking on the water. Let me uh, just give you a little bit of background information here. Um, last week we talked about Christ as he fed the 5,000, and uh, that was uh, interesting, a lot of fun. The event that's happening right here is just on the heels of that miraculous intervention of Jesus. If you remember throughout the series, uh, there, there would be months or sometimes even years between one of Jesus' major miracles like this. But it's fascinating that Jesus, he accomplishes one miracle where he feeds the 5,000, and then within 24 hours, the man is seen walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's fascinating because what Jesus has, has at one time spread out through his ministry, now all of a sudden it's a very concentrated moment in series in, in Jesus' life. And the reason behind that is because Jesus um, not only has his popularity crossed a certain threshold, and now he is, he is really gaining momentum, but it's because his time is drawing near the end, and he knows that the, uh, the Jewish leaders are rising up. He knows that his time here on earth is short, and so he is going to accomplish more and more and more as he heads to the cross. And so this is right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, Jesus, as he does this, he tells the disciples uh, they're going to head off in a boat and they're going to go towards Capernaum. Jesus steals away to a mountain to pray. And the Bible indicates that the disciples, um, it it seems that they get tired of kind of waiting on Jesus. And so at a certain point, they're just like, well, Jesus said to go to Capernaum, we might as well load up and let's go. And so they get in the boat and they leave without Jesus. And so the scripture uh, picks up here in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 22. The Bible reads When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat, and they started to cross the sea towards Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a wind, a strong wind, was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, pause really, uh, real quickly. Let me let me kind of give you a little more context of what's going on. I have a photo of a map I want to show really quickly, but let me give you a little bit of understanding of what's going on. The, the disciples are in the midst, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the land. To their knowledge, he is on the land. They have been rowing all night. We find from the other gospels, they've been rowing all night. They're they're going against the storm, against a strong wind. All of a sudden, uh, Mark gives us a a time frame. He says, it was the fourth watch of the night, which in in Roman measurements, it was anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the dawn was about to break. It was the darkest part of the night they're rowing through the storm, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, as you can see on this map here, the miracle of the 5,000 from what we can gather on this right side over here, Bethsaida, uh, this whole area, really, it's, it's hard to identify a centralized location. It's more of a region. And so much of the upper right-hand part of this map on the Sea of Galilee, that is somewhere in there is where the feeding of the 5,000 has taken place. So the disciples, they have pushed off from that area and they're headed towards Capernaum. So they're having to jet across the sea and somewhere, if you see the little yellow circle in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in that circle is where we believe the, uh, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water actually took place. Now we know from the text that they were three to four miles in their journey. So what we can gather is that from, from Bethsaida to Capernaum, it's about a six or seven mile journey. So they were literally in the middle of their journey, rowing against the wind, when all of a sudden they see Jesus come and he begins to walk on the water. Now, although we can't specify exactly, how far they were away from the shore they could have hugged the coast to some degree they could have gone straight across the middle we're not really sure but what we can gather and kind of piece together from all the gospel accounts is that the disciples were about a mile away from the shore okay so they may have been three or four miles into the journey but as close as they were to the shore on one side was about a mile Okay, so this is where they are, in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And the Scripture says that they were frightened when they saw him. But Jesus said to him to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that they had been only there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, Lord, as we open your text tonight, we thank you for the word of the Lord, and we thank you for this miraculous encounter that you gave to your sons in this moment. And Father, I just pray that you will help open our eyes to the miraculous, that you will increase, even as, a, as individuals, as a church family, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you increase our capacity to receive more of the supernatural, more of the r- miraculous from your loving, giving hands. And so Father, I pray for your settling on us tonight as we go through this text in Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. I want to show you a photo of my wife and I, and I want to tell you a little story. Um, last year in 2020, my wife turned 40. You know, some people, for some people, 2020 was like the worst year of their life, okay? And I understand that there's a lot of rationale. And it wasn't all, you know, cherries for, for me and my family. But let me tell you what, we, we, for the most part, we had a pretty incredible year. We, we celebrated 20 years of marriage. My wife turned 40 in January of last year. We brought home a new baby. I mean, just just incredible. I transitioned to a new role here at the church just just so much. We really felt the Lord's favor. But last year, uh, Joy's 40th birthday was in January. And so I, you know, trying to be a decent husband, I decided that I was gonna put together this whole dinner party for her. And we we were gonna go to the Blue Marlin downtown and we rented this room and we were gonna bring all of her friends. I started planning in like October and her, her birthday wasn't until January. And so um, we're doing all this and, and I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be incredible, but there's something missing. There's something that has to be like a, a super personal touch. And so I got with uh, Jeremiah Polk, he, he's like a film editor and just incredible in what he does. And I said, buddy, if, if I can pull together some, some videos, some photos, whatever, can you put together like, like some type of montage video or something like that? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And he did. And it was incredible, but I was limited to time because I put a song with the photos and so it all had to match and measure and all this kind of stuff. And I remember as I was going through all the photos, I was like, I've got to find X amount of photos for 40 years of her life. Her parents, my parents, everybody, I had asked everybody, send me every memory that you have, every good photo that you have, all this stuff. I literally had hundreds and hundreds of photos, but I only needed like 60 photos. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to go through this process of weeding out, like what 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 are the best photos, which ones are attached to memories and all this kind of stuff. And I started looking at a lot of photos and some of them weren't bad. They they weren't bad at all. They had great memories attached to them, um, but they weren't necessarily my favorite. And when I saw this particular photo, this is one I put in the photo, that was the weekend that we had gotten engaged. And this was just a few hours after we were driving home from South Florida, and I was asleep in the passenger seat. My wife had gotten pulled over for doing 101 and a 70 got a $400 ticket. It was an awesome engagement gift that I had to pay. Um, But anyway, so we had just gotten home and she had just told her parents and it was, it was such a moment of celebration, but it was such a moment that I thought out of all, it may not be the best, look at that baby face right there, right? And her too, but look at that baby face, you know? And I thought, I thought out of all the photos, I've got to have this one. And the question is, why did you have to have that? Well, I had to have that one because it wasn't just a good photo, but it had all this meaning attached to it. It had all these memories, it had all this love, it had all these things. It was a defining moment in our marriage. And so I had to weave through all these hundreds of photos and I did my very best just to find the ones that were the most meaningful. You remember John in the, in the beginning, he writes about the miracles of Jesus and he says, look, there aren't enough books like on earth to fill up all the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus did in his life. But even on the hills of John saying that, John only records eight miracles that Jesus does in his lifetime. And I started thinking, I thought, well, you know, Lord, why would John just kind of narrow down? And it's almost the same concept, that out of all that John saw, out of all that John experienced, John, in his wisdom, in his 90s, when he writes this book, he says, what I write will last for centuries and generations, and Christians will build a foundation upon it. So I cannot write about everything that I saw, but I can write about a few things I saw. And those few things I saw, I've got to make sure that there's so much meaning attached. I've got to make sure that there's so much depth. I've got to make sure that they are saying what Jesus wants these signs to say to everyone who will read these. And so when we get to um, this miracle of Jesus walking on water, you know, the other gospel writers, this is what, there are only two miracles that Jesus does that are in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are only two. One is the feeding of the 5,000, and the other is Jesus walking on the water. And so when we begin to open this, and you start looking at, you know, you'll read what Matthew said, and then you read what John said, and you're like, hold on, this this is left out of John, but it's added in Matthew. Well, again, it's because you're, you're listening to this from four different perspectives of four different men, from four different backgrounds, from four different points of view that are trying to find certain things about the divinity of Jesus and everything. And so it's really an incredible miracle. And it's no wonder that all the disciples, out of all they saw Jesus do, they narrowed the list and this was the one that they all chose to put in this. And so as we dig into it tonight, we're going to talk about all that God reveals about himself to us through this miracle. We're going to talk about the cautionary tales um, of the miracle. I'm really excited about it. If you got your notes, I'm going to go ahead and, and jump in. We're going to talk about what the miracle reveals about God. And all I'm going to ask you to do for the next like 45 minutes is, is put on your safety belt. Okay, because we're going to fly through a lot of this and we're just going to ask the Lord to really penetrate in our hearts what he needs us to hear tonight um, because there's there's a lot we're going to go through. Number one is simply this. The miracle of walking on the water reveals to us that Jesus is all powerful, even over natural laws, Science tells us and I even hate to use that terminology science tells us because science can't always be trusted But there are some things in science that are really not negotiable there are some things in science that um, There is a unanimous understanding of and one of those things is this that the universe as we know it contains at least 26 foundational something that we call constants And basically what this means is that the universe, um, there are certain things that exist within the universe, and if they did not exist, or if they were slightly varied, that the universe would either implode or explode, but either way, the universe would cease to exist. For instance, um, uh, the, the force of gravity, the gravitational force. Um, if the gravitational force was varied one degree one way or a negative degree the other way, the universe would implode on itself. I started doing some reading, some research, because sometimes I, I just get into nerdy stuff like that. And what I found is that if, if the gravitational force of the universe was shifted by one part in 10 to the 40th parts, okay? So in other words, that's 10 with 40 zeros behind it, okay? I read that uh, one way to kind of think about this is basically to say this, that if, if there existed a ruler or tape measure that could stretch from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe... And that tape measure had inches all the way throughout. That if the gravitational force were to shift from where it is one degree to the left or one degree to the right, that all that we know would cease to exist. There are 26, at least 26 of these things that we call constants. And the reason that God put these constants into play is so that creation could not only be sustained, but that life could be perpetuated. So that when we look, as Paul tells us to in the uh, the book of Romans, that as we look at, at creation and all that God has made, we come to a certain place, no matter how much we learn, no matter how much information we gather, we come to a certain place where we reach the end of ourselves and we say, I really don't know, but there must be something greater than what I can comprehend in my mind. And so the idea is that everything that you and I see are bound by certain natural laws, right? Every rock that you see is bound to a certain natural law. Your body is bound to certain types of natural laws. I want you to think about the, uh, the law of gravity, right? Don't get upset when I drop my Bible. This is what we call the law of gravity, okay? I could not throw this up and expect this to suspend in midair. Why? You would never suspect it. Why? The law of gravity. My Bible, as incredible as it is, it cannot defy the law of gravity, right? But we love to try. We love to try to break laws, even natural laws. It gives us a sense of adrenaline, think I'm gonna stay with the law of gravity. Um, I was in London a few years ago and when you go to uh, the Tower of London, you can go up an elevator like 60, 70, 80 feet in the air and they have this bridge that you can walk over, it's suspended, and it has a glass floor. And you can see the traffic and the people look like ants and everything like that. And there are some people that, you know, they try to jump on it. But they're insane, I stay on the side. But, but they jump and everybody's like, and it's such a rush for us because in some way, we feel like we are defying a law of gravity, right? This is why people skydive, okay? They're not really skydiving, they're skyfalling. Right, Because they aren't breaking the law of gravity, they are affirming the law of gravity. That whatever goes up, that very thing is going to come down. So we are all bound by the laws of nature. To one degree or another, we are bound by the laws of nature. But on this one night, the disciples are rowing against the wind. They are rowing against the very nature that we're talking about. They're doing everything in their power to defy this law that's working against them. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, coming off the shore, they see one where the laws of gravity do not apply. They see a man who's not bound by certain natural laws that every other human being that has ever lived has been bound by. The Bible says that as Jesus comes close to them, that the disciples were what? They were frightened. They were terrified. It struck fear in their heart that they could see a man who would elevate himself and literally walk on the water and defy the laws of nature. But what does Jesus say? He comes to him and he says, fear not, it is I. And Jesus, when he says it is I, it is literally the, the translation from New Testament Greek To Old Testament Hebrew, it is the same interpretation as the father when he stands before Moses and Moses says, who do I tell him sent me? And the father looks, he says, you tell him I am sent you. In the same moment, Jesus says, listen, I know you're afraid, but it is I. I am here and I am able to do all that you had hoped I would. It's a fascinating thing to think that Jesus is all powerful even over the laws of nature. But you know what's even more fascinating is that even Old Testament prophets, writers of the Old Testament, Job was not even a a type of prophet in the sense that we think of Elijah or different, different prophets like that. But prophetically speaking, Job in the greatest level of his distress, somehow he sees and he is able to articulate this very event that we're talking about in Job 9, 8, this is what he says. He's speaking of the Lord. And Job says, God alone spreads out the heavens and he walks on the waves of the sea. A little while later in Job 38, Job has gone to God. He has finally just had so, you know, too much of all this hardship. And he finally goes and he, he issues his complaint to the Lord. He contends with God and he's so frustrated and he feels so mistreated. And God, for and one of the first times we see God speak in such a way, God kind of answers Job kind of like sarcastically, you know, which is a side of God that we don't recognize very much. But the Lord responds to Job and he says, Job, he says, I'm sorry, could you tell me again? Would you remind me, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you right by, were you beside? Oh, that's right, you didn't exist, right? He's saying, Job, when I created the animals of the deep and the behemoth and all these different things, when I created these things, weren't you over there with a shovel help? Oh no, you weren't helping me because you weren't even a thought yet. And God speaks to Job in this certain way. And as he goes through all this, he's talking to Job. And this is what the Lord reminds Job. He says, Job, have you entered into the springs of the deep? Or walked on the recesses of the deep. In this moment, what the Lord is doing, He is prophetically speaking through Job's life of the miracle that Jesus is going to perform as He walks on the water in John chapter six. It's a fascinating thing here that God is not just all powerful. But when you take God to a level that says God is, you know, we we use these terms, these big big theological terms, he's uh, omnipotent and all these things, and we understand what that means. But it's a wholly different thing when a person has cancer that has been proven that they have cancer in their bones, and God himself steps in and heals that person. That is a very different way of thinking about someone who is all-powerful. And in this moment, we see Jesus not just theoretically be all-powerful, but we see him literally violate the very laws of nature himself. And so it reveals that Jesus is all-powerful. Number two, the miracle reveals not only that, but that Jesus wants us to experience this power. In Mark's gospel, Mark talks, Mark and Matthew talk about when Peter would step out onto the sea with Jesus. You remember this moment? Uh, John's gospel does not record that. We don't really know why. We don't know if like John was kind of irritated with Peter. He was like, I'm not writing that. You know, it wasn't me. You know, uh, we don't know what it was. What we think is that John was really just trying to focus on the deity of Jesus and the greatness of who Jesus was. But in Matthew and Mark's gospel, um, what we find is that Peter steps out onto the water with Jesus. And what's fascinating about this, is that as Jesus, when you read those gospels, as Jesus approaches the boat, if you look at the language, Jesus doesn't call out to Peter and say, Peter, come on with me. He does ultimately say that. But what happens before he says that is that Peter speaks first to Jesus. Peter expresses interest with Jesus. And then Jesus was willing to let Peter experience this power, but Peter had to ask for it first. I think that sometimes the scripture proves itself true all the time, really. But sometimes in our lives, personally, James, the half brother of Jesus, he would write this, he would say, you do not have because you do not ask. And it seems that in this moment, what Jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand is not only that he is all powerful, but they can share in this power as well. The Bible says that Jesus was walking by them and the text says that it was as if he was going to walk right by them. A better interpretation of that is to say that Jesus walked near them, but he was walking like beside them. And all of a sudden, Peter calls out, and then all of a sudden, just because Peter calls out, Peter asked for something that the other 11, for whatever reason, they were not willing to ask for. All of a sudden, not only do you have one miracle of a man walking on water, but you have two miracles of two men walking on the water. Now, as we dig in and we talk about Jesus wanting to us to experience his power as well, The miracle also reveals that Jesus wants us to live with a certain level of faith. Now, I'm gonna say something and I I wanna make sure that I take the time, I rush through the first part because I wanna make sure that I articulate this well and that no one leaves with any level of confusion as to what I said, okay? I think it's important for us to understand as as believers in, in a modern era that God does not call us to irresponsible faith. He does not call us to irresponsible faith, but oftentimes God will call us to irrational faith. There's a difference between being irresponsible and irrational. Some things just don't make sense because of the constructs that we have in our mind about the way that things should go. There's a very big difference between that and someone neglecting their duty or their responsibility and blaming it on Jesus, right? And so I would say that for mere illustration, I have nobody in mind while I'm thinking about this or anything, so for mere illustration, for a husband and a wife to have a family, children, to own a home, to have bills, to wanna feed their children, it would be irresponsible faith for them to say, we're gonna quit our jobs and we're just gonna stay at home with the kids and we're gonna sleep in as late as we want and we're gonna to go to bed as early as we want and we are going to believe God to provide because we are full of faith. Well, you're not full of faith, you're full of something, okay? But, okay, do you understand what I'm saying? That, that is not, that, I mean, it definitely is irrational, but it's also irresponsible, and the Lord does not call us to a irresponsible faith. That would, you know, conflict with scripture that makes it clear that if a person wants to eat, a person needs to work, right? And I'm not talking about all the nuanced situations the disability, all that stuff. I'm not, I'm just talking a very general illustration here, okay? So God does not call us to an irresponsible faith, but sometimes he will call us to an irrational faith. There are times when God calls people to do certain things that do not make sense to the rational person. A person who is not living um, in a sense in the spirit or with the mind of Christ, certain activities can seem incredibly irrational. Um, I was at a conference this last weekend and, and I heard a guy and he was talking about when he was a young man he was finishing up his sophomore year in college and he sensed the call of God to leave the university and he went to India and he spent the better part of a year in India in a colony with lepers. Now, was that irresponsible? Well, the man didn't have any real bills outside of his school tuition that was being paid for by someone. He wasn't married, he didn't have children, He wasn't in debt to be able to pay bills. If the man wanted to do something like that, it was not necessarily irresponsible for him to do that. Was it irrational? Yes, to the common American mind, that's a very irrational thing to do. But God oftentimes calls us to do irrational things, right? Um, Mark Batterson, uh, some of you know, he's an Assemblies of God pastor in, in, in Washington, D.C., and one of the first books that he wrote, he made a phenomenal quote that I just thought was so good for this moment. And this is what he says. He says, we need to quit living as if the purpose of our lives is to arrive safely at death. We need to stop living our lives in such a way where we are fine just to arrive safely at the point of death. And what he's saying is that our lives as we walk with Jesus Our lives need to have some level of faith which requires risk to be involved in that faith because the reality is this, is that sometimes God will not always be as safe with us as we wish that he were. Sometimes God will call people to dangerous situations Sometimes God will call people that will put their lives in harm's way and thank God that he does so that the gospel can be furthered in the earth today. God sometimes will call us to do things that are not necessarily irresponsible. God isn't calling people to go stand in front of gunfire and get shot to death, but God is calling some people to go to those regions where they know that's a possibility and their lives may be taken form. It's the difference between irresponsible faith and irrational faith. And sometimes what ir- irrational faith looks like in our lives is sometimes kind of minute on the big scale of things, but inside of us, it's enormous. There are some times on Sundays or Wednesdays when pastor may give an altar call for repentance or for whatever the case may be. And with hundreds, thousands of people sitting here, every week there are some people that I believe that the Spirit of God is drawing them. But in that moment, they do not activate their faith and take a step towards the Lord. Instead, they choose to take a step towards lunch. And so sometimes living a life of faith just simply means living by the Spirit being obedient in the moments when the Lord is calling us to invite people to church or witness to coworkers or whatever the case may be. Sometimes it looks like just being a generous person and when the spirit of God prompts you to be generous in that moment. But then there are some times when the decisions that we make, they are not irresponsible, they seem irrational, but it's not just as simple as walking down the aisle to an altar they're life-changing decisions that we are ridiculed for not because they are necessarily wrong decisions but because we know that there are people in our families or our friends who are not going to understand what we're doing because it seems irrational in their minds and there are times where the spirit of god calls us to do such things my my mother-in-law she i became a christian when i was 18. And my mother-in-law, she wasn't my mother-in-law then, but she literally discipled me for the first two years of my Christian faith. She is an incredible woman of God. She loves the Lord. She is amazing. She worked on staff at a church for almost 25 years. And when she was in her mid-40s, she sensed that God was calling her to leave her job and to go get her nursing degree at the age of 45 years she had no college credit she had she had she had graduated high school she had nothing she had nothing but she sensed the call of god calling her to do this where her husband was working and, you know, their house was paid off and all this kind of stuff. But it was gonna be a really big stretch for her to quit her job and to do this thing because it was going to require an extra measure of faith and an extra measure of sacrifices. And people from the outside looked at her and they said, you're 45, what do you think you're doing? Those days are over. If you wanted to be a nurse, you should have been in school in your 20s. This lady, she followed Jesus. And she went through nurse school. It was an incredible experience for her. And I'll tell you this, it was so, it it meant so much to me. Her willingness to follow the Lord, even though it seemed irrational to the people who were looking, it did so much for my faith in my life. And I'm gonna tell you, sometimes God calls us to do that. I worked for, when I was uh, a young man, when I was in my early 20s, before winning we the ministry, I worked for um, a nationwide corporation and all this stuff. And I was in sales and in my last year at the company, a 21 year old man, okay. I had, I had no college education at that point. I had a, a child that was already, uh, you know, here. My wife wasn't working, anything like that. And that last year that I worked for that company, as a 21 year old man, I brought home $73,000 in income. That's incredible. Like, I mean, that's incredible, okay? And it it wasn't anything I was doing. I was just being faithful and God was blessing it. Like, it was was amazing. But I'll tell you, at the end of that year, I got a call from a church in Panama City. And I remember them offering me a salary of $22,000. And I remember doing the math and I was like, something's not right here. (laughs) Like, I don't know if this is all gonna add up. And I remember sitting at a computer at my mother-in-law's house and I remember doing my bills and I remember trying to create a new budget with $50,000 less than I had the previous year. And I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I, like I, I can see how it can happen, but this is gonna be impossible to happen. And I talked to a mentor of mine and he sat there and he said, I, I see the, I said, look at this, look at this. He said, I see everything that you're telling me. He said, but I just gotta ask you this one question. He said, if you don't go, will you be able to live with yourself? And in that moment, the, the call of God was so strong in my life. I said, I said, no, it just, I mean, I don't feel like I'm being irresponsible, but man, this is crazy and this seems irrational. And I'll tell you this, people in my family didn't like it. They didn't like I was taking the grandbaby away. They didn't like I was taking, you know, my family and, and moving east. But I'll tell you, even through the criticism and even through the difficult conversations where people would literally look at us and they would say, you're crazy for doing it. I held on to this idea that the 11 disciples, as they saw Peter approach the edge of the boat, they must've thought to themselves, this man is crazy. This man is crazy. But when his faith was activated, he steps out and God does something miraculous in his life. All I'm simply saying is, is this. I'm saying that the Lord wants us to live with a measure of faith. And oftentimes that faith is going to require a risk that makes us feel terribly, terribly uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, when we step out and we enter into that risk, there is an exuberation that is supernatural that fills the soul and the life of all that you're doing. It's an incredible, incredible moment. A few years ago, I wanna share with you just really quickly. There's no way, how, there's just no way. What are you guys doing? How is it 810 already? I feel like there's time manipulation going on. I don't understand, okay. A few years ago, I came across a poem that was so convicting to my soul. In that season, I'm not saying it needs to be convicting, but I'm saying in that season, it was such a convicting moment for me because I had grown um, just, just very, very comfortable in the season that I was in when we lived in Panama City. It's attributed to a man named Sir Francis Drake, and this is a portion of the poem he writes. He says, disturb us, Lord, when we are too well-pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. When we have arrived safely because we have sailed too closely to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where the storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land. We shall find the stars disturb us, O oh Lord. And as I read that, it was a moment, it was a pivotal moment in my life because it was during the season when my wife and I, we were transitioning from the place we were in Florida to here in South Carolina. And it was one of those moments where the Lord, you know, the scripture reminds us that God has given each of us a measure of faith. But it was in that moment where God expanded my capacity of faith. It wasn't anything I had done. It was just a moment where God had expanded my capacity for faith. And I hope that God will continue to expand not only my capacity for faith, but your capacity for faith. Not only as we live in faith and do things in our life, but as we begin to see the supernatural unfold before our eyes, may God grant us the faith to receive and to be a part of it, amen. Number 4 the miracle reveals that Jesus wants to reveal himself in many different ways. Number 5 the miracle reveals to us that Jesus's glory should strike reverent heart excuse me should strike reverent fear in all of our hearts. Throughout scripture when you see people encounter the living God the initial response is for them to fall on their faces before him even when they encounter angelic hosts that have been in the presence of God and they have absorbed so much glory from God that when they stand before humans, the glory of God peels off of them. The initial response for people is to fall flat on their faces. In this moment, we see the disciples. They are frightened. You would think they would be frightened because the storm. You would think they would be frightened because of the sea. Jews had, uh, they were somewhat superstitious. They believed that the sea was sometimes nefarious and that sometimes there were evil spirits that would manipulate the sea and sink ships or drive the fish away or whatever. But in this moment, they are not terrified by the sea and they're not terrified by the storm. They're terrified because they see the glory of God in Jesus walking on the waves of the storm. And I will say that in, in our nation, in, in Western civilization, really, there has been a major downfall from the perspective that we have really, overall, generally speaking, we have lost a fear or a reverence for the presence of the living God. In some ways, we have almost set ourselves up to be the morality police of God. When we see things happen that we don't understand why or how or what God is doing, oftentimes in Western culture, we will make statements that say like this, if God is so good, da-da-da-da-da. If God is supposedly loves people so much, why would he? And in that moment, what we have done is we have lowered God as almighty. We have set ourselves as judges above him and we have become the morality police. The reason that we have done that is because the reverence of God no longer strikes fear in the hearts of men and women. And it's a cultural epidemic that we have seen sweep across our land. And I just wanna say this really quickly before we move on. I wanna say this, that we need, to, we need to be reminding ourselves often that God, although he is a personal God, although that Jesus was fully God and fully man, God is very different than us. He is, he is other than what we are. I listened to somebody one time, and um, they were a person who believed in predestination and all this kind of stuff. I'm not even gonna get into that. But basically, this is what the guy said. He said, look, he said, if you walk into your house and you see a cockroach on your floor and you go over and squish that cockroach, he said, are the other cockroaches gonna run to you and start yelling at you and casting you down because of what you've done to their friend?'" said, no, they're not gonna do that because cockroaches are at a different, they are just very other than what humans are. I am not saying we are cockroaches. I do not, I hate that analogy for that very reason. We are the children of God. We are the sons and daughters. We are beloved by God. We are cherished by God. For God so loved the world that he sacrificed his only son. He loves us with an undying, eternal, fervent love, Okay. But we have to remember, although we are not cockroaches and God doesn't see us as cockroaches, that is how different we are than God. As a human is to a cockroach, that is the difference of what we are in the eyes of God. He is not just different, he is other. We cannot understand, we cannot comprehend, he is other than what we are. And as the children of God, especially as the children of God, we need to be reminded of the reverence of God, we need to be reminded that the Proverbs remind us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is not the beginning of knowledge, uh, or, or it's not vice versa. It is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we've got to be reminded that God is so much larger than what we can comprehend. And in this moment, as the men look out and they see Jesus, they are seeing not just a man walking on water. They know what they're seeing. They're seeing the, the, the incarnate God himself walking across the waters. And so we find that there are a lot of things that we can learn about the Lord through a miracle like this. Are you guys with me? Are you okay? Okay. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna take the next 20 minutes. And if you have to go, the Lord bless you when, when that time comes. I'm not gonna be upset or offended or anything like this. What I want to do is I want to talk to you just very briefly about cautions that we need to have when it comes to the miraculous, okay? Now, there, there, there are a couple of different types of groups, um, just in, in case you've never heard of these things. When I use terminology, I want you to understand them. Um, there are people that would, con- that would call themselves cessationists, OK, and basically what they believe is this, is that when the apostles died in the, in the 90s, like AD 90s, when the last apostle died, that miraculous signs and wonders died with them, that God only used those signs and wonders to give a foundation for the church to grow upon. OK, they believe that they have ceased to exist, hence the name cessationist. They believe they have ceased to exist. We at Christian Life are what we call continuationists. And if you can put the words together, we believe that the miracles continued following the 90s A.D. And we believe that God still continue, even today, thousands of years later, God continues to operate in supernatural, miraculous ways, okay? Now, let me say this. Although we are continuationists, we must be a people that are open to whatever the Spirit of God wants to do but we must be a wise and a cautious people as we enter into this realm of what God wants to do. This last week, I, um, I attended a, um, a, a conference in, in the upstate, and, and it was very, a very prophetic conference, very much um, adhering to signs and wonders and miracles and everything, and it was an incredible moment. It was so refreshing for my soul. But let me just say, stepping away from that conference, I need, I need to remind us all that there's just some weird stuff that happens when you begin to operate in a realm with supernatural miracle signs and wonders. Not only is there weird stuff that happens, there are weird people that show up. Okay, I know that's like super offensive and I love you. So you can be weird and I still love you. God still loves you. But if you, there are just a lot of weird people that, that show up for, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I remember going to the conference. I am very open to whatever the spirit of God wants to do. But I'm also of the mindset that I don't want to entertain anything that's not real. Anything that's fake, anything that's inauthentic, I don't want any part of that. I believe that God can do all that he wants to do, but I want the real. I want, I want the real, right? And so I was talking, just kind of processing my wife. I was anxious about going because I was like, man, I just don't want to be like, you know, whatever. And, and I literally, as I was just talking to my wife, I, I told her this I said, babe, I said, I think what it comes down to is I want all that God has that is real but I just don't want to be deceived, right? I just don't want to be deceived. I don't want to, I don't want to think that something's going on, but not be able to, to verify that that thing's going on. I'm not just going to bite something off and chew it. And you may say, well, that sounds like a lack of faith. That may sound like a lack of faith, but in my defense, I don't think it's a lack of faith. I think it's an increase of wisdom. There is, there is nothing wrong with asking for evidence of a miracle. There's nothing wrong with that, right? What is scripture? What is Paul? Are y'all okay? Is this okay? All right. Paul, what does he say? He's talking about prophecy. He's talking about the miraculous. What does he say? He says, test all things. He doesn't say just whatever the heck happens, just let it flow. No. He says, test all things. Now, that's not to mean, okay, and I need to get to get let me, just, let me just jump into this because it all kind of flows in. Number one is simply this, when it comes to our cautions with miracles, okay? I'm so, I feel so bad for saying weird people. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. If that was a, I'm so sorry. That was not Christ-like at all. I'm so sorry about that, okay? Although Jesus did call people birds of vipers, okay? Just throwing that out there. Number one is simply this. We must not be a people who instantly dismiss miracles. We cannot be those people. There are people that when they step into a moment, when they step into the supernatural, that they are far too skeptical in their minds. In other words, their minds will not let them embrace faith. Their minds will not let them rationale that God is truly able to do things. Um, I remember one time at Southeastern, there was a professor and he said a one-liner that I will never forget. He said, "As, as sons and daughters, we must be people that have critical minds, but not critical spirits we must have critical minds so that we are thinkers and we process and we examine but we can't let that pour over into having critical spirits where we step into judgment of all things when it's not our role to step into those um and so there there are some people that are that are far there are commentators that you'll read and they're they're incredibly skeptical even in scripture when Jesus does certain things I was reading the commentator um in preparation for this and the guy basically said about jesus walking on the water they said well jesus wasn't actually walking on the water jesus was near the shore he may have been waiting in the water but it was an optical illusion because the time of night and the disciples thought he was walking on water but he really wasn't it was an optical illusion that is pure skepticism even and this is a christian believer and my, my issue, the issue I take with that is to simply say, how can you believe that the dead lay in a tomb for three days and resurrected, but you can't believe the same one would walk on the waves? How can you believe that and disbelieve this? And so we've got to be careful not to step into skepticism. Um, I'm not gonna do that, far too, far too controversial. We can't be people who are purely skeptical. At the same time, we can't be people who logicize everything. Some of these biblical scholars will use the term, they try to demyth Jesus. In other words, they want to to make sure that God isn't seen as some mythological being. And so what they do is they rationalize and they naturalize everything so that everything is explainable and nothing is supernatural. So for instance, when you read some people, they will talk about God as he eliminates Sodom and Gomorrah scripture says that that hellfire rained down on these lands, these people would say it was likely a volcano. And when the volcano exploded, it rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. To which my reply would be, if that's how God chose to work, then that's fine with me. You know, like that, in other words, if God chose to use a volcano, it doesn't mean that God is eliminated from the equation if god chose to use a volcano then god chose to use a volcano which by the way god chooses to do throughout the entire book of revelation he uses the natural world in order to pour out his wrath I've read people, I read, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Florida State fan and you can pray for me as football season approaches, but but I read a paper from uh, a professor at Florida State talking about Jesus walking on the water and this is what he said. He said, no, no, I know what the Bible says, but get those guys, they didn't really know what they were talking about. See, what we have learned is that there is a natural phenomenon that happens every few hundred years. And on the Sea of Galilee, what happens is that It gets so cold that certain times these little ice caps will form on the top of the water. And what Jesus was actually doing is he was walking on top of these ice caps towards the boat. My reply would be, have you ever tried to walk on ice? Because I've tried to walk on ice. I'm not very good at it, but I've never tried to walk on ice that was on top of moving water. I would say that's even more miraculous than I'm just walking on water. But again, it's this effort to make everything understandable and attainable. And can I just say this? That is the very nature of miracles, is that it has come to break those mindsets within and to reveal that someone greater than the natural laws has come and put himself among us. And so we cannot just immediately dismiss miracles or write things off. But number two, we must not be a people that just accept all miracles. Okay, now let me explain this. Moses, as he stands before Pharaoh, what does he do with the staff? He throws it down, right? Moses' opponents come before him and what do they do with their staffs? They throw it down. What happens to both staffs? they both become serpents this is a miraculous moment that had nothing to do with god almighty this was a counterfeit miraculous moment at the hands of the sorcerers in modern times we deal with this with people like psychics um, we understand, they're, 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 you understand that, that with, with psychics, there are some things that they get right, but it's not coming from the mind of God that they're getting these things right. It's coming from the other realm and, and the other. So those things need to be rejected and not embraced. But can I even say that that for, for as Christians, we just need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When we see the miraculous take place, we need to be reminded that even throughout scripture that there were shysters. We need to be reminded that all throughout Christian history, there have been people that have tried to sell bottles of water and made fortunes off of people. We need to be reminded that Paul, as he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, he's trying to equip him as a pastor. And as he's going through talking about the events of the end times, this is what he says. He says, evil people and imposters. In other words, what he's saying, he's saying, I know they say they're Christians, but they are imposters. And evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being Deceived. And so again, we can't be hypercritical, but we can't just be all accepting. There's a balance. There's a balance where we judge appropriately, where we test appropriately. Where um, again, there, there's nothing wrong with with looking for the evidence that the miraculous is actually taking place. There's not, that is not a lack of faith. That is a testing of the moment and. Um, we just need to be wise in all those measures okay so we can't be either extreme number three we must not misapply the glory of miracles every miracle is intended to elevate jesus christ not the conduit not the person not even the faith of the person not the miracle not the church not the pastor not the prophet Every miracle is intended to elevate Jesus as Lord. And unfortunately, what has happened, we have all, I'm sure I know I have been guilty of this. When we see God move mightily and powerfully through certain individuals, all of a sudden we lift those individuals up on pedestals and we make them demigods to the almighty God. And I'm gonna tell you, well, I can't tell you how many times I've seen throughout the years as people have put men on pedestals. Those pedestals are fragile. And when, those, uh, when those, those, uh, those pedestals get too weighty, almost every single time they crumble. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because in the human species as God created us in the spiritual capacity of the human species, there are two things that we were never meant to to endure. And that sin, the weight of sin, or the weight of glory. And when people begin to pour glory on a human being, they cannot handle it. The human capacity was not meant to receive glory that is due to God Almighty that we're just not built for it. And so this is why you see people who are elevated and, and all these different things, when, when they are put up like that, it, it, really they are being set up for a fall. And it's because we were not meant to sustain the glory of God. And so miracles should always and forever lead to Jesus. Number four. So number three, we cannot misapply miracles. They must always lead to Jesus. Number four we must not misunderstand the meaning of miracles, okay? This is what we've been talking about the last seven or eight weeks. Miracles are always to point to Jesus, but then beyond that, there are layers of meanings beyond these miracles, right? So it's important to understand that a physical, like a physical healing, a physical miracle ultimately, that miracle is irrelevant, right? Because everybody ends up in the grave. Does that make sense? So, so if a person is healed, that is amazing, and we praise God for that. But ultimately speaking, that person's still gonna, you remember Lazarus? Jesus goes and his close friend, he raises him from the dead. Guess what? Lazarus had to die again, okay? It was, one of, it was, it was the premier miracle, Outside of Christ's own resurrection, it was the premier miracle that a man had died and been dead for hours, perhaps days. And the son of God comes and raises him from the dead. But that man had to go back in the tomb. And it's meant to teach us this point. That the physical miracle is incredible, but it's ultimately temporary. And this miracle has greater density and greater meaning than just the physical act of the miracle. And our job as believers is to investigate that. What is God really trying to say through this miracle? This is incredible, your leg was broken and now it's healed, praise God for that. What is the deeper meaning behind that? And I'm not saying that we need to over-spiritualize things, but I'm definitely not saying we need to under-spiritualize things. I think that we need to investigate things. It's kind of like um, if you go uh, to downtown Atlanta, there will be murals of Martin Luther King Jr. all over the place. But it's important we understand that that mural is not just there so people can say, that's a really, that's an awesome mural. That's a really neat mural. Every mural has a message behind it. There's a a deeper meaning. And when I see a mural of Martin Luther King Jr., I'm not just thinking, wow, those are pretty colors. I'm thinking of his life, what he stood for, what he spoke for, what he spoke against. I'm thinking of all the different layers of what this could possibly mean. And in the same way, when God paints us a picture of the miraculous and we experience the supernatural, God is always and forever sending additional messages beyond just the physical healing. Does that make sense? You with me? All right, two minutes and we're done. Number five is simply this. Fifth and finally, we must not be miracle chasers. Now, please do not misunderstand me. Paul says that we should be eager for the greater gifts. Prophecy, miracles, Healing. In other words, Paul's saying in our spirit, we need to be eager for those things. We need to like seek God for those things. So when I say we cannot be miracle chasers, that's not what I mean in the sense of pursuing the Lord. That's that's not what I mean at all. I mean we cannot be people who find someone who operates the miraculous and bandwagon on them for the rest of our lives. Does that make sense? We can't be conference junkies. Okay? We can't be miracle junkies. We can't be people that forever do that because this is the reason why. Have you ever been to have you ever been to Sam's Club? I'm sure you have. Sam's Club. You know when you go, especially as a, as a kid, what do they have at the end of every aisle? They have a little stand, right? And they have these plates. And when you're a kid, you're like, Put them in your pocket. You're like, put them in your shoe. I'll go say this for later, you know? And you go, whatever. They're samples, right? The samples are not meant to fill you up, they're just to give you a taste of what you could have. And the point is simply this is that when we experience the supernatural activity of God through miracles, signs, and wonders, it's not the end all be all, it's just a sample. It's not just a sampling of what's to come, but it's a sampling of the glory of God that we can experience when we as individuals press into God. Not following somebody that presses into God, not riding on the coattails of somebody that's in the prayer closet, but getting in our prayer closet and not just chasing the miracle, but chasing the one who provides miracles and does an incredible work in the lives of all his people. C.S. Lewis said this and I'm done. I can tell you're done to. It was the weirdo thing. That's what threw you off in no, I'm kidding. This is what Lewis said. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. In essence, what he's saying is he's saying, look, we can't just settle for the things that we see with these natural eyes set our focus on heaven. set our sights on heaven. We don't we don't view just what we see. We see in a different way as the sons and daughters of God. And when we see in a different way, not only do we get the things that we see, but we get earth thrown in with it and all the good things that God wants to do in the earth as well. May God increase our capacity for miracles. May we be known as a people of the miraculous of the supernatural, of signs and wonders. But may we be known as a people of credibility and wisdom and integrity and a people who are willing to test the spirits as we strive to please the Lord and to love each other. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness. Lord, I want to apologize to you. Again, I'm sorry about the weirdos thing. But I truly wanna ask you, Lord, that you will help us as your people to be everything that you have called us to be. Lord, help us to stop sailing so close to the shore where we feel the safety. Give us the capacity to live in faith Live in a way that honors you, Lord. So I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you come even in this moment. Fill your people as your vessels. That you will help us to be a people that pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we do that, and as we touch the hem of your garment, that we experience the miraculous nature of our Father. We bless you. I bless your people. Love them in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen.